Our Father, as we begin this final month of 1991, we're so grateful that you have walked with us faithfully through the course of this year. And as we look forward to particularly the Christmas season coming up, Lord, I pray that it will be more than a season to us, but it will be truly the time of the year in which we remember the birth of Christ, who came to put on the form of humanity, that he might know the life that we have lived and that he might die on our behalf. We're so grateful, our Father, that we are drawn together by that common faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in giving us eternal life. And as we look back at the story of the first Adam, our Father, I pray that we'll be able to clearly understand the, not only the reason but all that Christ accomplished in becoming the last Adam. Father, I ask you to bless us and guide us in our study this morning, to be very present here during the course of these next few minutes, and to give us insight into your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I said, you should be on page 8 of your outline, letter L, the seventh day. We're beginning chapter 2. You might say about time, huh? Chapter 2 of Genesis, reading the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. In the six creative days that we've just studied in the first chapter, God had completed his creation of the universe. And as we saw, he made the planet, he made the stars, he made life on earth. The vegetation, the animal life, and of course the crowning mark of his creation, men and women. And the earth, of course, by that time, as we get to this moment, is a vast array of life. It, it would, to me, I think, be fascinating if we could walk on the planet during those hours and see the, the perfection of the created nature, to see every tree perfect, every plant perfect, every flower perfect, every animal perfect. Now, no, no animals that were distorted, no uh, imperfection of any kind in that created order. Then we read in this passage, as we just saw, that on the seventh day, it says God rested. Now, I think it's important for us and, uh, to note, as I'm sure we always have as we read that pas uh, passage, that God is an omnipotent spirit. God is not a body, as does not have a body as we have, and he's omnipotent. Therefore, obviously, God doesn't need to rest as we need to rest. He doesn't run out of energy or get tired as we get tired. Otherwise, he'd have been tired a long time ago, listening to all of us crying out unto him. I think thus we should look at the Hebrew word which is translated rested in one of its alternate translations, and that is ceased. On the seventh day, God ceased from the work which he had been doing in the creative work uh, week. Uh, God had completed his work, therefore he ceased from his work. And this, of course, must be the specific work 
of the creative week, not from all work, obviously. From our perspective, we could say that uh, all of the creation that needed to be done had been done. But because of what man would do, because of his disobedience and, the, and what we call the fall, God would continue to create. As we read in Psalm 51, he creates in us a clean heart. At least that was the cry of David. And the same word for create is used in that passage as is used in Genesis chapter 1, Barah. Creation basically out of nothing. God gives to us a, a, a clean heart as we come to him, not a heart that uh, is simply modified a little bit, but a new heart. He, he makes us a new creation, we're told in the New Testament. And old things are passed away, all things become new. It's, it's really something God does completely of his own and has nothing to do with just modifying slightly our existence. You probably know that there are certain denominations within the, quote, Christian framework that believe that within every person there's this spark of divinity, and all you have to do is kind of fan it a little, and it'll blaze up and we'll be all that God intended us to be. Well, you won't find that in Scripture. We also discovered that God has promised in Isaiah to create a new heaven and a new earth, and that, of course, is again the same word. It will be a new creation that God will bring about at his appointed hour, when this heaven and this earth are passed away, as the psalmist says, rolled up like a scroll. Then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So as we look at this ceasing, this resting, we have to think of it in terms of God simply completing that particular task, not that he would eternally rest from that uh, activity as if he were exhausted or something. Now, it's interesting as we read that passage that unlike the other six days, it mentions nothing of evening and morning here. It doesn't say, and this was evening and this was morning, the seventh day. It's not mentioned at all. In fact, it says instead that God blessed and sanctified, that is, he set apart the seventh day, and it does not say that about any other day. So this was an unusual, a different day. Of, from the other six as we look at it. Now, why did he do this? Well, he did it as an example for mankind. Uh, let's look at the familiar passage in Exodus chapter 20 for a moment. This, of course, is the account, uh, first account of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we all know that one of the Ten Commandments has to do with the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. It's quite obvious there, that verse 11, that God is establishing this as an example to us, to, to those who would live on planet Earth. Now, the term Sabbath, which we see uh, mentioned in that, is the Hebrew word Shabbat, or comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. 
and is, of course, translated rested in the Genesis passage as it is in the Exodus passage. God established the example of setting aside the Sabbath because you and I, mankind, needs a break. Not just at McDonald's. We need a whole day out of the week as a break for body, mind, and spirit, for our whole being to be regenerated, to be renewed, to be refreshed. But I think that it's not just the idea of resting that is important here. It's the idea that it is a day that we set aside specifically to remember our Creator, to focus our thoughts on the one who has made us, and to realize that our life is shaped and directed by Him, and, and, and our purpose for being here is to serve Him, to carry out His plan. Now, that God's resting was not a complete cessation of work is supported by certain other passages that I'd like to turn to just for a moment in John chapter 5. This is a passage that is useful for, for many things, but specifically for this idea, as far as this morning. John chapter 5, verse 15. Having to do with one of the several individuals we have mentioned in Scripture that Jesus healed. It says, And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on Shabbat, the day of rest, the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that is their rules concerning the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. You probably love the book of the Gospel of John as I do, because so many places is it made so clear that Jesus is the divine Son of God, equal with the Father. But Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, simply the idea of rest didn't mean that you know, God stopped working and he's been sitting up there idly, you know, rocking back and forth in his hammock looking at what he's done. But God is working to, to maintain this creation which he has established. In fact, I think we could be, it could be argued that if God were to withdraw his his, his creative hand, this universe would cease to exist. And I think that's the, the thrust, at least, as I see it, in Colossians chapter 1, a passage that is often read uh, having to do with who Jesus was and what he came here to do. But specifically, it says in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and 17, For by him, who? Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
I don't think that just means spiritually in the sense that the only uh, reason this whole creation makes sense is because of Christ, but I think it means literally in the sense that God holds it together by his power and by his might. Scientists have yet to be able to understand the working, inner workings of the atom and how this thing all holds together. And in some way, it certainly is an exhibit of the power of God and his maintenance of the universe by his hand. And so we have to not limit Jesus Christ. We have to see him as the one who was there in, in the moment of creation, was, was the creator himself who made the creation by his power and for his sake and holds it together by his ongoing power. So God isn't resting in the sense of doing nothing since creation. And so as we look at the term Sabbath, and as we look at this idea of setting aside the seventh day, we have to see it within that particular framework, I believe. So God set aside the seventh day for the good of mankind, not for his own good. For him it was to be mankind, you and me. It was to be a day of ceasing from the daily routine. Exodus 34, 21 says, You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. Now those of you who are at all familiar with farming, I've never been a farmer, but I've talked with some and read enough to know that when it gets to be that critical time of harvest, you just work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure you get to harvest in. But he says here, even on at harvest time and even at planting time, you set aside Sabbath and you don't work on that particular time. This, of course, is what he was saying to the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. Now, by Jesus' day, as you well know, uh, some of the Jews had taken this to ridiculous extremes. So much so that Jesus finally had a, some pretty uh, intense words to say. Now this isn't on your outline, but let me just turn to uh, the second chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. This is one of the passages that is paralleled in the other synoptics, in both Luke and Matthew. It says, and it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. And, and Luke, in, its, in his account, says, and they were rubbing them together in their hands, the, the grain heads. And the Pharisees were saying to him, see here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he gave it also to those who were with him. He was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, if you continue on in the next chapter, which is chapter 3 
of, of Mark, you find in the next few verses a, another situation in which Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. It seemed like Jesus picked on the Sabbath to do certain things, particularly in the presence of the Pharisees. The point of the whole passage was that human need supersedes ceremonial law. When there was the need for food for David and his companions, they were allowed to take the consecrated bread, which was actually to only be eaten by the priests. But because the need of, of David and his companions was greater, was great, they were allowed to take the bread, and there was no condemnation. And you read the passage back in the Old Testament, there is no condemnation placed upon David for taking that consecrated bread. Because the Sabbath, the law was made for man, not man to plug into some system that God has established and wants us to walk like a bunch of robots. And the Pharisees, of course, didn't understand that. They had built this humongous auxiliary uh, uh, list of laws to augment the Sabbath. And, and you could walk so many feet on the Sabbath and you could do just up to this point on the Sabbath and this you could do and that you couldn't do, far beyond what God says in the Scripture. And so what they're dealing with is, these guys are threshing grain and it's illegal to thresh grain, you know, because they're rubbing a little bit between their hands. This is threshing grain. Jesus, of course, had strong words for the Pharisees and their their vast modifications of the law, even to the point where they, they elevate the traditions of the Father, fathers above the law of God. Now, God intended the Sabbath, this, this time of rest, to be a time when men and women would turn from their daily routine of things, their daily labors, and focus intensely upon the need of the heart, Focus intensely upon the one who created and provides for every need. We have a tendency, I think, even today, to go on through our daily routine and, and do our jobs and, and look at our income and, and go up the corporate ladder or whatever it is we're doing and to forget that it is God who gives us sustenance every single day. Those, those individuals who think they're self-made men or women, you know, I have... It's, it's like somebody was mentioning, I don't know if it was in, in one of the church services or where it was, I heard it, but uh, I, don't, I don't read uh, or watch anything having to do with Bart Simpson, but uh, I read somewhere that uh, he uh, you know, offered a, a prayer of grace, which was, uh, we bought it ourselves, so no thanks to you, Lord, which is, of course, a total <laughs> misunderstanding of, of everything as if human beings are able to provide for themselves and have that capacity. We don't have the capacity to survive one more moment if God so willed otherwise. So it's so important that there be a time set aside, and of course, theoretically, every day, all of our, our walks should be a walk of prayer. We think of Brother Lawrence, who could wash pots and pans to the glory of God but that one day out of a week be focused upon God was what God knew was important for us to be regenerated in our spirits as well as in our bodies and our minds. Also, there's another important aspect here, and that is that the Sabbath and this setting aside of one day as God did in the beginning 
is a reminder of the eternal rest for which we're all pressing forward. Not that we stumble through the pearly gates on our faces exhausted and lay there for 7,000 years, but, but that we enter into this, this joy of the Lord, which is there for all of God's faithful followers. Hebrews chapter 4 gives us great insight, I believe, concerning this. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 is, uh, is understood within the context of Psalm 95. And, and he's coming out of chapter 3, where at the end of chapter 3, he says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Referring to the children of Israel who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness until that whole generation was wiped out because they did not believe and as a result did not obey. And so from there he builds this. Therefore, let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, referring to those in the wilderness, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. I want to stop just for a second there. To me, this is a key verse on salvation. Hebrews 4.2 is one of the key passages in understanding salvation. We think sometimes, simply because somebody went to the altar and prayed the prayer, they're obviously in the kingdom of God. And we wonder why after six months they, they are, they're back into the world as they had been before, maybe even worse. And why it is sometimes out of, quote, Christian homes, even preachers' homes or missionaries' homes, are, are young men and women who are antagonistic to the gospel like no nor normal pagan is. And the reason is, is given here. Because although they heard the word, it was not united by, with faith. You're not united by faith in those who heard. And thus, they were never transformed. They never were new creatures in Christ. They had the, the environment of it. They may have walked as if they were, but when the day of proof came, they were not in the kingdom. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and of course this is back in Genesis, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, referring back now to Psalm 95. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Notice, good news. There was a gospel preached to the, those in the wilderness. I think it's so important for us that we don't divide the Scripture into Old Testament and New Testament and put a big wall between them. To me, I, I look at from creation day to our day as just a, a, a straight story which has been recorded for us in, in two different books called the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there's, there's no great division between them. There was a gospel preached to them in the wilderness by Moses as, as he brought it down from Mount Sinai. That is the gospel, the good news of God's grace and of His mercy. 
and they heard it, and yet they did not believe, and so they perished in the wilderness. Verse 7, he again fixes a certain day, today saying, through, uh, the, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. In other words, some would say, well, the Sabbath rest, uh, that, that rest that was being talked about was the entrance into the land of Canaan. And when Joshua led them through and they took Jericho and they finally was, were able to overwhelm Ai and they branched to the north and they branched to the south and over the next months they basically overwhelmed the land and then they were able to settle down and, and it was a turnkey country, right? They, they came in and, and the orchards were planted and the vineyards were planted and the fields were planted and they just took it over. That's the Sabbath rest. No. Uh, that's why he says here... Uh, he would not have spoken of another day if that had been the Sabbath rest. That was just a type of the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest is that which comes when we all pass through onto the other side. When we stand before our Creator as true believers who have been obedient in this life, then we enter that Sabbath rest. And that's the one that is, is foreshadowed in Genesis and is referred to in Psalm 95 and is being referred to here in Hebrews chapter 4. And so you have it from the beginning, the middle, and the end, all the way through Scripture, this constant teaching of the Sabbath rest, that eternal time when we'll cease from our striving here, from the things that wear us down here, and we're able to enter into the joy of the Lord and then express ourselves fully because we'll be in new bodies and we'll be able to live up to what God has created us to be. To discover something of what it must have been for Adam. To walk in the garden in perfection. To not have tempting thoughts as we have. To not have enfeebled bodies as we have, or minds, or whatever it might be. One day all of those things will drop away, and we'll be able to really rejoice in the presence of the Lord as he intended us to. Okay, let's look now at uh, Genesis 2.4. Fourth verse, next point on your outline, point M. Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, notice a very strange verse here. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Some of the events which are recorded in the first chapter of Genesis are summarized here in this particular passage of Genesis 2. As we read, it begins with the words, this is the account of, or these are the generations of. Now we noted this way back in the very first lesson, that that's where the name Genesis comes from. The name of Genesis, of the book as we have it here, comes from this verse, Genesis 2.4. The term genasios means generations. These are the generations of, this is the book of the generations of, in other words, as far as we understand the title of the book. Now, verse 5 is an odd verse here. It seems kind of almost out of place, which, of course, it is not. And it has been interpreted many different ways, but two principal ways, which I have uh, noted for you there in your outline. The first way by which it is interpreted is that it is a summary of the first ten verses of chapter 1, describing the earth before any form of life had been created, describing the, the, the bald planet, if you will, before God began to raise up vegetation and the animals and, of course, ultimately man. A second way, though, of interpreting this particular verse, and many have, is that it is a reference to post-fall conditions, to the conditions that would prevail after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden when man would then have to labor to make the ground produce. Now, I think from our study of the first couple of chapters, we'll see that, that man didn't have to labor as we think of labor to get the ground to produce as he was ordered by God to, to trim the garden. It was a joyful activity, and it wasn't by the sweat of his brow or by the sweat of his frow, whichever way you choose to interpret it. There is a reference here to no rain. And that means that it could even be a post-flood verse, a reference to conditions after the flood. It's possible that that is so, because there was no intention, apparently, for rain, and there's no mention of rain at all until you get to Genesis 7-4, where it says, uh, God not only promised rain, he promised it would fall for 40 days and 40 nights as a steady downpour. And we interpret the, the readings of Genesis up, up to the sixth chapter, at least, uh, as the fact that there had not been rain, as we think of rain, at least, on the planet prior to that time. And so many would hold, therefore, that this verse is a post-flood verse. Now, it's kind of interesting that because there was no rain doesn't mean that drought conditions prevailed on the planet as we think of drought conditions here in California now. In the sixth verse, it says, But a mist arose and watered the whole surface of the ground. This would imply, of course, that there was a diurnal variation in temperature that the temperature difference between night and day was significant enough that during the day there would be evaporation from the local bodies of water, and then at night it would cool just enough to reach the dew point and for there to be condensation. And that condensation would be in the form of dew or a mist, a fog of some sort, which would then water the ground. And we might say, 
boy, you can't do much watering that way. It's kind of interesting, uh, years ago when I was taking certain classes uh, at school, uh, we made a study, and, and one of the studies showed that uh, along the California coast, as you well know, we have a lot of fog. And in certain places, particularly around the entrance to the Golden Gate, where you have that uh, sea level entrance into the Great Central Valley with its, with its great low pressure area, particularly in the summertime, it sucks the the fog in off the coast and it sweeps in through there and comes in through Vallejo and gives the Bay Area its natural air conditioning. But as it moves in there, studies were made of some of the trees right along the coast, these con con conifers. And, and some discovered that under some of the conifers, just from the, uh, from the fog, there was equivalent to 60 inches of precipitation dropping on the ground. As, as those needles collected the moisture and it dripped off the needles onto the ground under the tree. In the course of a year, there was equivalent to 60 inches of precipitation, of course, only under the radius of the tree, or the diameter of the tree. So, obviously, even today, mist can produce a significant watering, and I think in the Garden of Eden, uh, it probably was able to do uh, at a far greater rate even than that. Now, some, of course, translate the Hebrew word here, which we read, at least in the New American Standard, as mist. Some translate it as streams instead of mists, because the Hebrew word there has enough variation in it that in some places it can be interpreted as streams, as in terms of rivers flowing. And therefore, of course, the idea is that the garden was watered by the streams which flowed through it. And this, of course, would imply that there were underground reservoirs which were adequate to supply water to the earth's surface. Now that this is possible is at least inferred later on in Genesis when the time of the flood came and it says, and the great fountains of the deep were broken up. Whatever that might mean, it could refer to a vast underground reservoir system with conduits that brought water to the surface in many places, which was pressurized by the heat of the earth itself, which of course no longer exists because of the great cataclysm at the time of the flood, which broke all of those up and produced the vast uh, majority of the water, which uh, covered the surface of the earth. So you know, really, it doesn't really matter, does it, whether it was mists or streams, the, water, the, river, or the surface of the earth was adequately watered without any rainfall. Seems to be what is implied here. Now, we come to the passage, I suppose, which is most interesting to us. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, in the first chapter of Genesis, we read where it says, God created man in his own image. Now we see it says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Which is it? Did he make man in his own image, or did he make him out of the dirt? Some critics argue that this illustrates one of the first contradictions in Scripture. Well, obviously, it's not a contradiction. It simply is the verse which gives us the details of how God formed, or from what God formed, the human body. As we 
discussed last week. The image of God is not this. Our body is not the image of God. The image of God is the soul, the spirit that indwells man. That was made in the image of God. We are simply the clay vessel. That is, this is simply the clay vessel which houses that soul and that spirit. So we have here the Lord God ma uh, making man of the dust of the ground. And what's interesting is, back in 2.4, it says the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. That's the first use of the word Lord before God. It's the first time the word Yahweh shows up, which is the personal name of God through the Old Testament. It's been Elohim up to that point, and now it's Yahweh Elohim, specifically naming God Yahweh. He chose to create man from the elements and compounds of the earth. You know, it's almost funny, isn't it? what God did. Just to look at a person, I look around, you guys don't look like dirt. You don't look like rocks. You don't look like you're akin to them. I hope, anyway. We don't. But, of course, modern science has discovered that if you take the human body apart and analyze it, you discover there's hydrogen and oxygen and carbon and calcium and, and iron and manganese and all these elements which are inside us, which are, of course, the elements found in the crust of the earth. So you and I physically are related to this planet, to the dust of the earth. After creating a perfect but lifeless body lying there on the ground, God breathed life into that body. He filled that body with animating vitality, and then placed within him the image of God, the eternal spirit. And man became a living being, it says. Beyond the animating force which drove the animals. Yes, the animals are alive, and they can reproduce, and they have a consciousness. They even have a self-consciousness to some extent. But we have an eternal spirit which is made in the image of God. <laughs> kind of interesting, Matthew Henry makes this statement. He, that is man, was not made of gold dust or powder of pearl or diamond dust, but common dust. And then he goes on to say this. What have we then to be proud of? So brief, so succinct, so pointed. It gets right to the crux of the whole thing. We're nothing but dust of the earth, so what in the world do we have to be proud of? Even if we're the most handsome, the most beautiful, the most talented, the, the richest, the most powerful, what are we to be proud of? We're just made of common dust, and every one of us is made of the same elements as every other one. They're just arranged a little differently from one to the other. What have we to be proud of? Think of Satan as he is described in Ezekiel and in Isaiah as the anointed cherub that covers, as he was just gorgeous. And of course, he arrogated himself to equivalence with God. But we don't even have that start. We're just dirt. And yet that's the same 
problem that we face too. We arrogate ourselves to Godhood. And as we get to the story of, the, of the Adam and Eve in the garden as they faced the tree, that was the whole one of the bases of the temptation. You should be like God. Now, I, I think that we have to be really careful here that we don't go to the point where we have worm theology. That we're nothing but worms and, and we aren't good for nothing. <laughs> Pardon the grammar. That, that there's no hope for us and that we ought to just go on with a chin dragon on the ground. No. If we're born again, we're sons of the king. But we're not sons of the king because of what we are, but because of what he has made us. And that's what we always have to focus on. That's the glory of it all. And that was the glory of Adam and the glory of Eve. They were children of the king in their pre-fallen condition. They were perfect. And they were not proud. They were humble. They walked daily and communed with God in the garden. Until that moment, they chose to become like God. And then conditions changed. It's so much a blessing as I read this, this verse. It's, it's not on your outline, but you can stick Psalm 103 uh, verse 14 in there if you want to. Because this is where our hope rests. Psalm 103, verse 14, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Now that doesn't mean that God goes around saying, you are a bunch of specks of dust. Who do you think you are anyway? It means that Jesus, it says, was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He knows who we are, and he loves us, and he's gracious to us because he knows we are but dust. So rather than worm theology, we, we should have the theology of, of a prince and a princess, but not one who is a prince or a princess because of our right or because we have made it possible, but because of his grace in reaching down and lifting us up from the dust from which we were made and making us in the image of his son. The eternal spirit that was put in man was not made from the dust. The eternal spirit that was placed in man came from heaven by the breath of God. And that's wherein we are to be in the image of Christ. Now the first phrase of chapter 2, verse 8, if I get back to it here, says, And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. Now whether or not this particular phrase is in chronological order, or not, uh, we can't be sure. Again, mentioning the fact that in the Hebrew Old Testament, the concern with chronology was not as great as we have a concern for chronology. When I, when I teach a course in history, I generally teach it in chronological order. I usually start from the earliest date about which we have information, we move up to the modern time. Even though I, I've heard of those who have attempted to do it the other way around. That would be kind of interesting, but it would take a little bit of reorienting of our thinking to do it that way. It's sort of like if you uh, look at the maps which have been produced by the, um, oh, I forget the name of the organization, but over the, the Institute of Holy Land Studies related group has created a map of Israel 
where Israel is, is lying horizontally. And east is at the top of the map. And north is to the left, and, and south is to the right, and west is at the bottom of the map. And it takes a little bit of readjustment for us who are constantly accustomed to north being at the top of the map to readjust our thinking. There's not a thing wrong with a map like that. In fact, they do it because they would show slides and, and you know, who wants a tall map, you know, that goes to the ceiling. Looking at it this way, it's easier to go this way. <laughs> and so they made their maps to fit the projections on the screen, which they were doing. So chronology may or may not play a role here. We really can't know for sure. Uh, God may have established the garden on the third creative day. As part, when he vegetated the earth, he may have created the garden uh, at that particular time. But many feel that he created the garden subsequent to everything else. That he actually created man and then he made the garden. Because you'll notice what it says there, and God planted a garden. It doesn't say God created. And the same word for planted there is the same word used later when it says Noah went out and planted a vineyard. And we know Noah didn't go out and go, and there was a vineyard. You know, he had to plant the the. the grapevines in order for the vineyard to develop. And so this is the same word. So it seems like what it's saying is that after God created the world, God created man, then he went and built this special place in which to put man, and he allowed man to watch him do it so that man could see God create this special place just for him to witness God's love and care as he planted this garden, established this wondrous place, in which he would put Adam and Eve. Now, exact, the exact geography of, of Eden is a little bit uh, nebulous, and we'll talk about it a little bit uh, well as we get to the next passage. But we are told here that it was planted towards the east. And of course, the immediate question is, east from what? Well, the only logical, or not necessarily the only logical, but a, a logical uh, explanation is east from the place where God made Adam. That God created Adam at this particular place, then east from him, he, he planted the garden. Towards the sunrise. The direction towards which the temple would face. The direction towards which the tabernacle would face. The rising of the sun, not that the ball up there called the sun would have anything to do with worship, but the idea as we see it, I believe, in Malachi that where the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. The term Eden is generally translated as delight. He lived in the Garden of Delight. Sounds like something from uh, Pilgrim's Progress, doesn't it? Or something C.S. Lewis or Tolkien might describe. I think it's important, though, that from the usage of the word Eden, he's not just saying he created a Garden of Delight. He's actually creating a place which was called Eden. I mean, that was its actual proper name. God placed man there. How did he do it? Did he say, Adam, come? Or did he just go, whoosh, whoosh, 
There are later scriptures which seem to indicate that God took people like that. Remember, Philip went out in the wilderness, out of the wilderness by the power of the Spirit. I think within hours of man's creation, maybe within minutes, who knows, God planted and brought this, this garden into fullness and it brought, brought man to it and said, Adam, what do you think? Now, of course, Adam didn't have much history to compare it with, but God had built in Adam a perfect mind. And we talk about a mind like a sponge. He would have absorbed everything very, very quickly. And he would, from the very beginning, experience the truth of James 1.17. Remember that passage? It says, every good thing bestowed, and every perfect gift cometh down from whom? The Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. From the very beginning, man would experience the gifts of God. Not only the gift of life, but the gift of a perfect home in which to live. Coming down from the one who was immutable, unchangeable, from the God who would be the same from the moment he created Adam in the garden and put God, Adam in the garden to the very moment when this, this world is gone and goes up in a fervent heat, as Peter says. God does not change through that whole time. And I think part of the joy of Christianity is knowing that we do not have a capricious God, a God that we don't know what he's going to do tomorrow in terms of good or evil, which, of course, the gods of the pagans, they go out and, and they serve their gods and they give sacrifices to their gods and they don't know if the god's going to accept them or slap them down for it. But we know, and Adam knew, what kind of a god he had from the very beginning. What kind of a garden must this have been? I don't know if you're a garden lover, but I like gardens. I, I like a landscape that's beautifully manicured. Not that I don't like nature in its wild, too. Sometimes it's pretty rough, though. But, uh, but a manicured garden with, with beautiful trees and flowers and lawns and everything just trim and, and perfect. I, I think there's no garden you can think of. <laughs> yes as Terry tries to create day by day, and everything works against him. You know, you've probably been in beautiful gardens. We've been in the garden over there at Versailles, the great one that was begun by Louis XIV and has been modified over the centuries, and the great garden by the Schönbrunn Palace there at Vienna. Beautiful gardens. But can you imagine how they would pale before this garden? Fruit trees galore. Everywhere. Luscious fruit hanging off the tree, unblemished fruit, all perfect in color, shape, size, and taste. I don't think you and I could even appreciate them because we have sin-dampened senses and we wouldn't be able to, ex to, to, to even experience the perfection. Oh, it would certainly be better than what we know, but we wouldn't be able to experience them in the full sense God intended them to be. God gave us our senses to experience our environment and to experience what God has done. Really, the purpose of our senses is to give glory back to God for all that he has done, not to be warped 
and to use our senses for lustful and self-gratifying purposes, which is what is constantly flaunted before us today, right? You watch television or whatever, I mean, all the advertising is to gratify our senses in a lustful, self-oriented way. But the purpose of these perfect senses was to appreciate the wonderful love of God and to stand in awe of one so great who could do what he has done and do it for us because he loves us. But you know, we will experience that one day. We'll be able to enter that perfect world that God is making for you and for me. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And I, I, again, I don't think we should visualize that as some kind of a sterile uh, marble place with, with gold on the floors and pillars and kind of cold. And No, I think it's going to be marvelous beyond our description, our ability to describe at this point. In the midst of this beautiful garden, God placed two trees. Tree of life, eternal life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eternal death. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as far as we know, exists no more, but its fruit permeates this world. But on the other hand, what about the tree of life? Well, as you know, there are many, many passages, well, I shouldn't say many, but there are numerous passages in Scripture which refer to that particular tree. And let's just look at a couple of them in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Obviously, that could be spoken of mostly figuratively here, because it goes on to say, which is in the paradise of God. Which is in the paradise of God. The implication is that it still exists in God's paradise. And, and you and I know that the paradise of God that was created called Eden does not exist anymore. Huh. I mean, it couldn't exist in this world of chaos and sin and darkness. So it's been transplanted, so to speak. Look at chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on an, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to, to the tree of life and may enter the gates by the gates into the city. Again, figuratively, certainly, but I believe there will literally be in God's paradise the tree of life which we will see with our eyes as Adam and Eve could witness it there in the garden, and from which we will partake of fruit, not because it's necessary to partake of it to sustain eternal life, because we have been granted that by God at the moment of new birth, but simply for the joy of it and the glory that it implies. 
and by the, uh, of the participation in who God is and what it is that he has done. That tree is gone momentarily, but one day again we will taste of it in that eternal paradise, that Sabbath rest place to which we are headed. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll be looking at in more detail next week, is gone. But it already, its poison has already penetrated this planet and this solar system and this universe. How, we do not understand. But the whole universe is decaying, the scripture tells us, as a result of the sin of man. Because one day God will create a new, a new heaven and a new earth. Next week, uh, we'll begin with the geography of Eden. And we're going to read about four rivers. Interesting, really interesting. And we're going to, of course, look specifically at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what its impact was upon the man and the woman. And, of course, then the creation of woman, which for most men was a very, very wondrous time. 